0: Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back here this morning. Um, throughout the summer, I've been talking about uh, how easy it is when we disagree with other people. I've been using the metaphor of boxes, and I talk about how easy it is to put people in boxes and dismiss them from our lives. And we've been talking about... Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, I heard a thump. Everything all right? Oh, it wasn't a child. Sorry. When I hear that sort of noise, I think child. And uh, so, yeah. Anyway, I I, uh, I took the first sermon to sort of talk about that idea, and then this uh, last sermon I talked about gratefulness, gratitude as a way to start not putting people in boxes, as a way to maintain a Christ-like posture toward other people. And so today I want to continue to unpack this idea of how we maintain a Christ-like posture towards people, how we can agree or disagree with them, but treat them as fully human. Um, and I want to do that uh, by talking about this passage from Nehemiah um, that Nat just so ably read. Thank you. Uh, but before I do that, I want to talk to you about when I went to Kohl's on Monday. Um, most of, maybe, maybe not most of you, many of you know that I'm an inveterate runner. I love to run. Or um, I think Coach Lord put it well when he actually said, I, I don't always love running, but I love having run. Does that makes sense? I like the feeling that comes when you're done running, although I don't always like it when I'm actually running. Even when I'm busy, I will try to go running even late at night. Now, uh, in some areas of my life, I'm also a cheapskate. Um, Not every area, but in some areas, I'm very cheap. And running is one of those things that I'm extremely cheap about. So I don't go to a fancy running store for my shoes. I go to Kohl's or to Marshall's or to some other place like that. So I was at Kohl's on Monday, and I found a pair of Nikes that I really liked. They were $34.00. So I went ahead to get them. And then on the way out, though, I saw a pair of Avia's, at least I think they're pronounced Avia, A-V-I-A. Uh, I saw a pair that I really liked. They were really light and good for road racing. Uh, there are different kinds of running shoes, and these were just really light, almost meshy, real breathable fabric. And they don't have a whole lot of stability for your ankles, so it's not good when we get to the wintertime and you're running on snow ice rock salt or whatever but in the summer when you can just run on the road boy i love those kind of shoes and they were super cheap they were 31 dollars. so of course i went looking for my size and of course they didn't have them i wear size 12s which are not unusual in fact i think they're common enough that they get sold out pretty quick and uh, so they only had up to size 11 there But then, here's the part that I wanted to tell you about, about Kohl's. The most amazing thing happened. There was this huge computer screen next to me with a scanner, and he went up to it, and I scanned the barcode for the shoes, and up popped a picture of the shoes that I was looking at. And it had a link where you could order them from Kohl's.com in sizes going up to size 13, so including size 12, and so and with free shipping, mind you. So... It was amazing to me that this thing, uh, just all my life, when I've been looking for cheap running shoes, I thought, well, they don't have any 12s, they don't have any 12s. And then, lo and behold, Kohl's had a whole mess of running shoes available in my size. It made me think that, uh, now some of you are probably thinking that's old news, they've had things like that for a long time, maybe, I don't know, maybe not in Olean, I don't know. But it's amazing to think about how the world has changed drastically, even in the last 10 years. It's now incredibly easy, easier than ever before to buy and sell things, much easier than it was, again, just 10 years ago. And that's, of course, to say nothing about the ways that the world has changed in the last 50 years, let's say. It was 49 years ago this summer that my grandparents moved to Houghton, and when I hear about my mom living out her teen years, it always sounded so isolated here. Right out in the middle of nowhere, only a few stores within an easy distance. If you needed anything big, you had to drive to Olean. If you needed anything really big, you had to drive to Buffalo, to Rochester. And now, if there is anything in the world that I want, and I mean that almost literally, I can have it shipped to my house in two days. Amazing. Almost anything, and It's here. It makes it, in my mind, a tremendous privilege to live here because physically I'm surrounded by this beautiful countryside, but I'm so much less isolated than when my mom grew up here, and I'm very thankful for that. But as I got to thinking about it, I realized that 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 connectedness, that ability to have anything what we want, when we want it, it has a bit of a cost to it. I thought of that, pa- that time at Kohl's when I was thinking about this passage from Nehemiah because it's essentially the same thing that's going on here. The, the fine folks at Kohl's are doing something amazing, yes, but it's something amazing essentially for the purpose of separating me from my money. Right? It's not as if they've cured cancer or done anything uh, great and altruistic. They've done something great for themselves and made it easy for me to spend my money at Kohl's. And that's essentially what's happening in this passage in Nehemiah. There is such a desire to buy and to sell. The grapes, the wine, the grain, the figs, the fish, the other merchandise, the goods of all sort. And and six days just simply isn't enough for the people to do all the buying and selling they want to do. And so they're coming into Jerusalem and they're buying and selling on the Sabbath day. And they're producing in their Sabbath day. And they're perhaps rationalizing in their heads about why they're not really breaking the Sabbath while they're doing that. And Nehemiah puts a quick stop to it. He bars the door. He stations men at the gates to the city, so the merchants can't come in. So the merchants, of course, who are crafty as ever, decide, well, if they can't buy and sell on the Sabbath, they'll at least do their traveling on the Sabbath, and they'll get to be first in line. So when the Sabbath's over, they can come in. So they sleep outside the city gates, and and Nehemiah says, why are you doing this? If you do this again, I love this line, I will lay hands on you, which... When I was ordained as a pastor, people came forward to lay hands on me. But I don't think that's what Nehemiah hands, has in mind. Right? He is, he's talking about violent hands. And, and the Levites go out and Nehemiah sends the Levites out. And he says, make sure there's no Sabbath breaking going on. And they do. You read the passage. And you realize how little things have changed in some ways. And of course, on the other hand, how much they've changed. So on the one hand... There's this deep human drive, the appetite, to buy and sell, the relentless ingenuity of humans to find new ways to buy, to sell, to produce. And all of this, of course, is very familiar to us. It's stereotypically what our nation is about. So in that way, it's very similar to what we've known. But on the other hand, it's so different because I don't know if we have a Nehemiah today. There's Nehemiah, this wild man, locking the gates, stationing guards, laying violent hands if need be, trying desperately to do whatever he can to put the brakes on. To put some kind of boundaries on this insatiable drive to buy and sell. To do something to check the appetite that got them exiled in the first place. And there he is at the end of the passage, Nehemiah throwing up his hands To God and saying, God, I've done everything I could here. Remember that, God. Remember, I did what I could. Show me mercy. Even if you can't show mercy to these wicked people who insist on buying and selling and buying and selling and buying and selling. No matter what. I I don't know if we have a Nehemiah. I don't know if we have anyone with the prophetic imagination of Nehemiah anymore. I don't know if we have anyone who, who tries to put boundaries on our appetite to buy and to sell. Or if a person like that would just seem crazy to us besides to be honest why does nehemiah care so much does why why does this bother him in the first place i mean doesn't nehemiah know that he's just being legalistic to focus on the sabbath listen to amos amos speaking 300 years before the to the people of israel listen this is what the sovereign lord showed me said amos a basket of ripe fruit what do you see amos he asked A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence! Hear this, you who trample the needy. Do away with the poor of the land. Saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? When will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they've done. Won't the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, it will be stirred up and sink like the river of Egypt." In that day, declares God, I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight, turn your feasts into mourning, your singing to weeping, make you wear sackcloth, shave your heads, make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea, wander from north to east, Searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. Speaking 300 years later. Nehemiah sees the same thing. When we give in to our relentless appetites. To buy and to sell. We become different people. Than we want to be. We become people. Who do not care about the poor. Who become blind to what they go through. When we fall in love with sating our appetites, we become deaf to the cry of the poor. We become blind to their situation. And, says Amos, we become indifferent to the word of God. Everything else in the world, even the truly valuable things in the world, pale to us in comparison to getting our appetite sated. And we become ripe for destruction. We lessen ourselves. And this is why Nehemiah bars the gates. If someone doesn't put a boundary on our appetites, he fears the people are going to go right back to being slaves to their appetites again. And they will lose the poor and again become ripe for destruction. We see shades of this kind of reality throughout the Bible Throughout the Bible, we we see that the way that people manage their appetites, the way people learn to say yes and say no, is tied with how they treat other people and how they see themselves. We see this even in Jesus' own teaching. Think about the story of the prodigal son for a minute. In the story for the prodigal son, the younger son's appetite, his appetite for fun, right, leads him to break a relationship with his father, to live a wasteful and reckless life, And it eventually leads him to his own debasement, to working with the pigs, wishing he could eat pig slop, and thinking of himself as no more than a slave. This is what comes from not being able to manage his appetite. And the older son, his zeal, which is by itself, of course, a cleverly disguised appetite for self-righteousness. The older son's appetites have led him to a life of resentment, to a life of fractured relationship with his brother, and his father, too, even though he didn't know it. And the the older son, too, understands himself as a slave because of it. All these years, he says to his dad at the end, I've worked like a slave for you. Christians, I think, are very easily divided between those that care about personal purity and those that care about social justice. Right. On the one hand, there are Christians who think that the essence of the gospel is all about I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do, right? Or whatever the modern equivalent is for that, right? There are those who think that the faith is all about keeping oneself from all movies or R-rated movies, playing card games, all card games or certain card games, sex, gambling, Factory farms, natural gas drilling, uh, watching too much television, cars with bad gas mileage. There are people who think that the faith is about keeping those rules, but they get awfully angry if they dare to suggest that the gospel is about how we treat the poor as a society. And then on the other hand, though, there are Christians who think that the essence of the gospel is all about serving the poor in society, giving them a cup of cold water, advocating for the marginalized in our society. But when you ask them about hey, how does Jesus play into this? How does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus make you any different from any other do-gooder? They don't know what to say. That's a division in our culture, and it's this division that Amos and Jesus and Nehemiah are speaking into when they say, stop! The way that you manage your appetites very much shapes how you view other people and how you treat them. Learn to control your appetite For money, says Jesus, and you won't break your relationship with God and your brothers and sisters. Honor the Sabbath, says Amos, says Nehemiah, and you will learn to care for the poor. Learn to control your appetite for self-righteousness, says Jesus, and you will live without the constant resentment of your brothers and sisters, which is deep down a resentment of God himself. Learn to control your appetite to buy and sell, and you will see the poor as real people instead of as problems to be solved or ignored. Manage your appetites and you will begin to see others as real, genuine people instead of obstacles or idiots to be avoided or endured. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we start learning then to manage our appetites? If that's true, if managing our appetites is tied to the way that we look at other people, how do we manage our appetites? Let me suggest that the seeds of an answer can be found in two words. Fasting, feasting. Fasting and feasting. Now those two words, especially fasting, are words that we do not usually embrace as evangelicals. In fact, the whole idea of fasting can make us a little bit nervous. It, it kind of conjures up this image of nominal, passionless religion. Maybe someone you knew in Catholicism, right, who rigorously avoids meat every Friday, who, who can follow rules of human origin to the letter of the law, who religiously takes the Eucharist but doesn't know her Bible, who doesn't seem to know a relationship with God that gives life once you get past all the rules. That's what the image that fasting can conjure up for us. And of course, I don't think that's great either. I'm not advocating that we all go do that, right? But let us let me gently ask us evangelicals if what we're doing to manage our appetites is working any better. I know a lot of people who can critique other people for a religion that's just going through the motions. But when push comes to shove outside of the worship service, it's hard for them to control their appetites too. You talk with young men, you talk with guys... You will find that there are lots and lots of guys who sincerely love Jesus and know a deep and intimate relationship with him, but cannot kick pornography. Even though they know it objectifies women, even though they know it encourages them to objectify the women in their lives, they can't kick it. I know lots of people who sincerely love Jesus, who express that in deep and passionate worship, but they cannot pass the opportunity up to gossip. About somebody else. Even though they know it destroys the community they live in. Are we doing any better? Fasting is not simply not eating. Fasting. If we want to put a definition on it. Is temporarily choosing. To abstain from a good gift of God. That you enjoy. So it's not permanent. It's not saying I'll never eat a cheeseburger again. Thank heavens. And it's not just avoiding a sin. It's not like saying, I'm fasting from gossip today. No, we should fast from gossip every day, right? And it's not just simply avoiding something you don't want to do anyway. I I remember uh, this past spring when Lent came up and Ash Wednesday came up. Lots of people put on my Facebook, I'm giving up Lent for Lent this year, right? Not exactly, right? Instead, fasting is saying, there's something that God has given me to enjoy, it's mine to enjoy, it's mine rightfully, but today I choose to put it aside. Think of things like meat, for instance, or movies, or Facebook, or or technology in general, or sex, or speaking. All of these things are given to us to enjoy in their proper context. But when we fast, we say, not today. Not today. Another time. But not now. Today I'm going to sit down and be quiet. Why do we fast? When we fast, three things happen if we fast mindfully. One, we f- when we fast, we gain sympathy for people who, for whatever reason, can't enjoy the gifts that we enjoy. Uh, how many youth here have done the 30-hour famine before, or adults, the 30-hour famine that... World Vision that's right. It's this thing where you don't eat for 30 hours at a time, and you do so kind of with an experience of solidarity with the poor. That makes you, when you're without food for 30 hours at a time, you become keenly aware of um, those who don't enjoy eating on a regular basis. I remember I was an exceptionally cruel pastor when I was a pastor at our church, and our church was right near the mall in our town. And, uh, and so we would always spend the last hour of the 30-hour famine at the mall doing a scavenger hunt. And I would make them walk right past the food court and smell it. I was such a mean guy, right? But the fact was, I wanted them to know. I wanted that kind of experiential reality of what hunger is like to be driven deep into them. When we fast, we appreciate, uh, you know, the many hungry people for whom food is not a given. If you're married, you know, a temporary abstention from sex with your spouse can increase your sympathy for those for whom Christian teaching about sex is a burden For unmarried teenagers, for women called to singleness, for men who experience homosexual temptation. When we fast, we learn what it's like to be them and we have sympathy for them. When we abstain maybe from driving for a day, we say, I'm going to stay put. It can help us to appreciate the plight of the impoverished or the sick in this deep experiential way. So that's one thing is we, we learn, we gain sympathy for those without. Two is we, when we abstain from a good gift from God, we begin to realize how much we depend on that gift emotionally far more than we should. One of the great revelations for me when I fast from food is how I use food emotionally. Right? I ask food to do far more than nourish my body. And I become keenly aware of that when I'm not using food at all. I use food as therapy and sometimes to get through a difficult day or sometimes to celebrate a good day or, or simply to relieve boredom. None of those is, well, some of those are okay at times, I suppose, uses of food, but not uh, as a general attitude towards food. And fasting makes me aware of those attitudes going on in me. I can only know my emotional dependence on something when I've let it go and I fall flat on my face. That's what fasting does. And the third thing that fasting does is it makes us realize how good those gifts really are. If I fast from technology for a day, if I put aside my laptop, I go back to that laptop stunned at what that little box can do. How it lets me communicate with people all over the world so inexpensively. How it helped me to get back in touch with friends from high school and middle school. It, It reveals to me how much I depend on it, maybe too much, but it also shows me what a good gift it really is. That's what fasting does. Now, now we evangelicals, I think we tend to to dwell too much up here. Maybe especially in Houghton, we dwell too much in the cognitive. We think that by knowing things in our heads, we really know them. So we think that when Jesus calls us to have faith, we say, Okay, Lord, I know what it means. I, I know, I believe in my head that you're the Lord of my life. I believe in my head that you lived, that you died, that you rose again. I believe in my head that you want me to do certain things. But it's hard for that to change our lives. I mean, God can do that with a miracle, I suppose. But, but, but generally, those things don't change our hearts and our lives. Because when Jesus says he wants to know us and be known by us, he doesn't just mean our intellect. He means our whole person, our whole beings. So fasting is education for the heart. It's education for the spirit. It's education for the whole person. When we fast, I, can't, I, I go beyond saying, God, I know how good you are. God, I know how weak I am, how I need you. When I fast, I'm keenly aware Whoa, this gift I'm not using right now is really good, and I am really weak. Fasting does what textbooks can't do. So, so, fasting is part of it. But, so on the other hand, is feasting. Feasting is taking time to fully enjoy the gifts God gives us, drinking deeply of the gifts. God gives us. And I'm going to leave that metaphor there so that you don't think I'm talking about wine, right? But drinking deeply of the gifts God gives us. When we feast, we say, God, you have given us such good gifts, and today I will do nothing but enjoy them and nothing but be thankful. Thank you for this food. Thank you for the earth. Thank you for my family. Thank you for human companionship. Thank you for technology to connect us with each other. Thank you for games to play. Thank you for all good and perfect things. Because they're from you. And just like fasting can teach us at a gut level, feasting can do the same thing. Feasting is this experiential understanding of how good God really is. Chocolate cake. I have thought about bringing a piece of chocolate cake in and just eating it while I was giving this part of the sermon. I decided not to do that. Because I want to keep your attention on what I'm saying. But, but, but chocolate cake. Think of it. Chocolate cake is so good. Isn't chocolate cake good? Isn't it a great gift of God? And most of us can't imagine eating it without feeling what? Guilty. At least a twinge of guilt. Because we've been taught that chocolate cake is really good. But we should never eat it. Right? <laughs> So some people just eat it quickly because they're nervous about being caught eating it. And some eat it slowly because each bite carries so much guilt they can hardly chew. But trust me, right, Trust me though, feasting is good. Chocolate cake is better without guilt. It is. It's so much better to enjoy chocolate cake. It's good to feast sometimes because chocolate cake is a gift from God. And if you don't really ever enjoy it, you don't fully appreciate what God has done for us in chocolate cake. I'm reminded of the story, Teresa of Avila, our, our our Sunday school class, read a book of hers. And there's a story of another sister coming into St. Teresa. And she's just, she's eating this chicken. She's just devouring this chicken. And I, I don't know what you're like when I eat chicken wings. It's all over the place. I need 30 napkins. It's just all over. And I, that's the picture I get with Teresa. She's just devouring this chicken. And the nun just looks sort of surprised. Like, this is a great saint. This is a mystic. What's she doing? And she says, Teresa says to her, when I pray, I pray. When I eat chicken, I eat chicken. Does that mean- <laughs> There's a time to eat chicken and a time to pray. And so much of life, so much of our difficulty in dealing, I'm going off script now, so much of life, so much of the difficulty in dealing with other people is because we are trying to live our lives in two directions. We're trying to enjoy all these things that God gives us while deep down thinking that they're not really good for us. We're trying to enjoy them, but enjoy them furtively, quickly, so that no one else sees us. And yet, at the same time, at the end of the day, we feel cheated. Somehow we've eaten this chocolate cake, but we haven't really enjoyed it. That's what feasting does. It makes it a commandment to enjoy it. Enjoy the good things God gives you. Feasting demands, eat it, don't feel guilty. It's part of your job now. That's part of what feasting does. And feasting also increases your understanding that God's plans and purposes are bigger than us and bigger than our perfection. Honestly, when you let go of your self righteousness and feast, and at the end of the night you realize that the world is not appreciably worse than it was before when you were feeling guilty, you begin to realize you don't save the world. God does. It doesn't excuse you from partnering with God to bring in the kingdom, but it does make you realize that the kingdom coming in does not depend on whether or not you are intemperate in your chocolate cake consumption. That's what feasting does. And feasting also makes you grateful. To go to bed on a feast day and to, be realized, to realize that you've been given every good thing, that's wonderful. That gratitude is infectious. And it's actually far more helpful in evangelism than the four spiritual laws a grateful Christian. Fasting and feasting, we need both of them. If we're to manage our appetites, we need to be thankful for the good gifts of God, that's what feasting does, without letting them dominate us and learning to love the gifts rather than the giver. And that's what fasting does. Imagine a second for a world where people never fasted nor feasted. A world where people never learned these lessons. A world where people couldn't manage their appetites. A world where people didn't really appreciate God's gifts. In a world like that, some people would misunderstand food and starve themselves to death. And other people would eat way too much and not be able to control themselves. In such a world like that, people would pursue sexual pleasure at all costs and yet be more fragmented and alienated from each other than ever. In a world like that, people would pursue power, would pursue prestige, and they'd never be satisfied with it when they got it. They they would chase money and never enjoy it. They would seek love and be completely, totally incapable of receiving love. It's that sort of person who would pursue chocolate cake and, and technology and every other gift of God just to enjoy it furtively. Always thinking about where the next piece of chocolate cake is coming from, only to hate themselves and feel guilty every second while they're eating it. People like that are never at home, not even in their own bodies. Does that world sound familiar? It should. (laughs) It's our world. It's this sort of world which C.S. Lewis has in mind when, when he talks about a dying man who looks back over his life and he says, I see now that I have spent my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. In a world like this, we pursue everything and enjoy nothing. Our lives lived with all sorts of possibility, all sorts of potential, all sorts of opportunity, but tinged with what Henry Nowlin calls a suicidal melancholy, always at the door. We need to recapture a balance of feasting and fasting. A great place to start with this is a recognition, a celebration of the Christian year. The early church acknowledged Lent and Advent as penitential seasons, as times of fasting, as times of introspection, as times of saying, no, today I will not indulge. But then when they feasted, they feasted. They celebrated not one day of Christmas, but 12. They celebrated not one day of Easter, but 50. And through those seasons, they enjoyed their good gifts. They remained mindful of the poor, but they spared no expense on celebrating because their willingness to celebrate was an acknowledgement that they had gotten a gift worth getting. So throughout the year, they took some time to fast and some time to feast. And the result was a people who walked with Jesus experientially at a gut level throughout the year. The highs and the lows of the spiritual life, rehearsing them every year. They were ready to live Jesus' life in the world. They were ready to extend Jesus' ministry in the world because they had been walking with him all along. Now, I'm not a legalist about keeping the Christian year. You won't find me, you know, going to your house at Advent and getting rid of the Christmas tree until... I won't do that. But I will say that it's been a valuable lesson for me to learn to fast during Lent and Advent. Every Lent, every Advent, there is a way in which I say no. Be it avoiding donuts, be it avoiding technology in some way, be it avoiding food altogether during daylight hours. And that fasting makes me ready to say at Christmas, yes, Jesus, be born in me today in a new way. It makes me ready to say at Easter, I relish your new life, Jesus. I've laid my life down with you for these last 40 days, and today I take it up with you again. And I long to give it away just like you long to give your life away. Well, I'm gonna close. I gotta fast from preaching, I guess, but but I wanna tell you one more thing before I do. I wanna give you one piece of advice. Go and feast today. You have to start somewhere with what I'm saying, right? So you may as well start with the feasting, not the fasting, right? In the early church, Sunday was always a feast day. That's why, and some of you know this, I'm sure, but Lent is 46 days long. Why? Because there's 40 days of fasting, but there are six Sundays. And the early church said, you know what? The resurrection is such a big deal, we're not going to fast on Sunday. Every Sunday is a feast day. So the resurrection is so important that every Sunday it had a little feast. We try to do this in our house in little ways. Uh, Sunday, uh, Every day at breakfast we have the same question. Can I have another glass of juice? I don't want my children becoming intemperate with their juice usage. So normally the answer is no. But on Sundays the answer is Yes. You may have more juice today. Why? Sunday's a feast day. So enjoy juice, kids. Right? (laughs) On Sundays, we do our best to celebrate without reserve. That's how crazy we are. We have more juice, right? No, but we try to take naps. We try to run. We try to thank God for the life we have. And I want you to do this today, this Sunday. Go feast. Enjoy your lunch without thinking about calories. Why? Because God gave you a good gift in that lunch. And you destroy it when you're feeling guilty. Take a nap. Wake up refreshed. Don't feel guilty about it. Jill will have to take turns, but we have kids to watch, right? But God gave you the gift of sleep. Enjoy it. There's going to be tomorrow for fasting. And I mean that literally. Tomorrow will be a day where you are going to have to think about how to steward those good gifts God has given you. But for today, Christ is risen. Keep the feast. Let's pray together. God, all around us, if we have eyes to see, we see a world in which people don't know how to feast and fast. A a world where people don't know how to manage their appetites. And it leads to destruction. It leads to them misunderstanding themselves, starving themselves, or gorging themselves. And it leads to a breakdown in relationships with other people. It makes it so we can't care for the poor in the way we're made to. God, we pray that you would help us to recapture some kind of balance in our lives, that fasting and feasting could be a way for us to learn to manage our appetites, to learn to enjoy the good gifts you give us without letting them dominate us, so that we can be more integrated people, so that we can be truly human in the way you've made us to be, and so that we can live our lives for others and open ourselves to them as you did. You who laid down your life knowing that you would take it up again. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.